and welcome to On Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we engage you with issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, often avoided, or even ignored. Prostate cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer amongst men in the UK. And with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. This is our first interview of 2022, and I want to wish all our listeners a very happy new year. I'm Claire Delmar. Joining me today is Errol McKellar, founder of the Errol McKellar Foundation, which is dedicated to raising awareness of men's health and in particular prostate cancer in the black community. Errol has a legendary status in the London youth football community, having been a coach and scout for over 50 years and supporting the rise of premiership in England players, Beckham, Cole and Campbell. His car repair garage in Hoxton has also become legendary, featuring in a documentary on his community, now showing on Amazon Prime, and most impactfully as an information channel to black men about their health. And it's this latter point that brings Errol to talk with me today. Errol was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2010, and since then has dedicated himself to informing and supporting men, especially those in the black community, about prostate cancer, and in particular, the importance of getting screened. He's been highly recognized for his services, Errol is one of Prostate Cancer UK's main ambassadors, and along with Linford Christie, David Hay, Danny John Jules, Viv Anderson, Chuko Amuna, and Benjamin Zephaniah, he's fronting their Stronger Knowing More campaign, which encourages Black men to get PSA tests. In 2012, Errol was chosen to be one of the Olympic torchbearers in Hackney, and in 2016, his volunteer work in the community was recognized by the Prime Minister when he was presented with a Point of Lights Award. And in 2018, he set up and launched the Errol McKellar Foundation being invited following that to 10 Downing Street to talk to the Prime Minister, Secretary of State for Health, and the head of NHS England about the prostate cancer awareness work his new charity will undertake. In 2018, Errol was awarded an NHS Heroes Award for his services to volunteering. And in October, 2020, he was awarded an MBE for services to raising the awareness of prostate cancer. Well, that is quite a CV and we have a lot to live up to, but I'm delighted to introduce Errol. It's an honor. It's a pleasure to have him here today. Errol, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for inviting me to come and share my journey with prostate cancer. And thank you for your listeners, to, you know, for hopefully listening to what I have to say and helping us to do something about the issues with prostate cancer. Awesome. Well, let's get cracking. I've, we've got a few questions that um, we've talked about, and now uh, we can share those with our listeners. And I think, I mean, I've said a lot, <laughs> uh, but there's obviously a lot more about your background. And I think it would it would be really great to start by having you tell us a little bit about your experience with prostate cancer and how this has motivated you to set up the foundation. Thank you, Claire. I mean, as you've said, you know, my name's Errol McKellar. I'm a prostate cancer survivor. And I'm the founder of the Errol McKellar Foundation. And my journey with prostate cancer started at the end of 2010 when my wife, Sharon, bless her, was complaining about my snoring. And before, <laughs> no. yeah, before we go any further, snoring has nothing to do with prostate cancer. But the reason why I mention it is because a lot of times people find out about their illnesses with prostate cancer purely by accident. Mm-hmm what happened to myself mm-hmm. so you know, going back to the story I, I i turned to sharon i said look if this snoring bothers you that much if you make an appointment with the doctor i'll go and, and and a warning to all men you know if you ever ask a woman to do something expect her to do it because that's what will happen and indeed so, indeed <laughs> i knew you were going to come to say something there mm-hmm. went to the doctor uh sat down in the reception room 
right? I read a leaflet and decided, right, that I was going to go to the reception and make an appointment to come back and do this test. When I got to the uh, desk, uh, the young lady said, Mr. McKellar, you don't have to make an appointment. This is a simple blood test and it takes less than 10 minutes. Well, I've got to tell you, little did I ever imagine at the time that that 10 minutes was going to change the rest of my life. Um, I did the blood test. I sat back down and waited for the, uh, the doctor to see him about the snoring. I even remember going home that night and the wife was cooking dinner at the time. And I turned to her and I said, oh, by the way, while I was waiting to see the doctor about the snoring, uh, I did a blood test for uh, prostate cancer. Well, so can I can I interrupt here for one second? Because this is fascinating about the fact that you were actually offered the test on the spot. Because this is this is actually a first hurdle that a lot of men face that they can't even get the test. So I'm I'm intrigued that a the reason why you went to your GP, which we're going to come back to, I know about the snoring, but I'm I'm also interested in the fact that you know you're you're able to get that test on the spot. Is that unusual in your experience? Well, I have learned since that, you know, it's something that it's not always readily available. You have to make an appointment to have that test done. So I'm assuming that the, the time that I walked into the uh, doctor's surgery, they were offering this test anyway. You know, so that's why when I went to make the appointment, thinking that I was going to make an appointment like you always have to do in, in when you go to the doctors, right, that I'd have to go and make the appointment to come back and do the test. Yeah. But what's happening was I think that was a week when they were offering the test and they gave it to me there and then. And, you know, so I had no choice of avoiding it because, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as I said, you know, my thoughts was never to go and immediately do the test. My, my thoughts was to go and make an appointment to come back and do the test. Yep. You know, okay, so I'm, you were lucky. You were lucky. It was on, yeah, on the day. And this is why this is why I'm saying to people, you know, if you go back to the beginning of the story, where I the only reason why I was at the doctor's is because I was snoring. Mm -hmm. You know, and luckily that led on to me doing the test, and this is where we are with it today. So I had the first first blood test uh, a week after the first first blood test. You know, uh, I got a phone call. Could I come in to do a second blood test? You know, so I said to the doctor, is any, you know, is anything all right? He said, yeah, you know, we, it's a routine thing. We like to do a follow up on things that, you know, we do. And I just took it. OK, well, that's general conversation. I went in and I had the second blood test. One week after that second blood test, I get a phone call. And the doctor says, um, Mr. McKellar, um, we've booked you in for a, a biopsy. So I said, oh, okay, well, you know, when are we, when are we going to do this then? He said, well, we've actually booked you in this morning. So we, you know, give me a phone call to see if you're available to come in this morning and do the uh, biopsy. Wow. wow. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I said, okay. And, and, and then I put the phone down and I phoned my wife and I said, you know what? I've just had a phone call from the doctor. They've actually booked me in to have a biopsy. So she said, well, when do they want to do this? And I said, well, they've actually done it for me this morning. They want me to come down to the hospital this morning. So she said, okay, don't drive. If you get a cab and, and I will meet you at the hospital. Mm -hmm. And so, quick question, quick question. I mean, did you have any idea what a prostate biopsy entailed? No. Well, let me, let me tell you, let me explain to you, right. This is an interesting question that you've asked because just before I put the phone down, I said, by the way, what is a biopsy? And the answer that my wife gave me, she, she said, 
it's nothing to worry about. It's something that we women have to go through all the time. It's quite routine. So I just took it, that's what it was. And I have to be honest, I'm very glad that that's how she explained it to me because, you know, when I had to have the biopsy, it was very difficult. It was very, very intrusive. And yes, it was painful, but the importance of it is something that you have to have if you want to have a diagnosis of this issue. Yeah, so I had the biopsy, um, as I said, very difficult, but something that needed to be done. Mm -hmm. One week after that biopsy, I was called in to do the scan. I did the scan a week after wait, wait, the scan. Wait, 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 so you, you, this is, you're referring to an MRI, correct? Yeah, yeah the MRI and that was scan. Done, that was done after the biopsy, not before? Yeah. No, no, I had that after the biopsy. I had and this was what year? 2010. This was all. This all happened in this in the space of five to six weeks. All of this happened. It was just rapid, very quick, yeah. very instant. And you know, then I started to understand that something is wrong because when I had the biopsy, a week after that biopsy, that's that's when they called me and my wife in and they sat us both down. They said, Mr. McKellar we have to tell you that your prostate is covered in cancer. Well, I got up and I walked out of the room, Claire. I, I, you know, uh, I think the conversation went right over my head at that mm. time. Mm -hmm. I came out of the building, I went and I sat in my car. And you know what, to this day, I don't know whether I was scared or frightened or both. I just remember losing complete control and just bursting into tears. Mm. And I felt helpless, I felt lost. I didn't know what to do next because all through my life, I've always been able to, to understand what I need to do next. What's, you know, what I have to do, you know, moving on and, and things that are important and how I deal with them. But I had no answer for this particular situation. I, I think the word cancer hit me in such a way that it left me speechless and thinkless, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. I remember my wife coming into the car and she sat in the car with me and, and you know what, it, it's interesting because, and, and this is why it's very, very important for men to talk to their nearest and dearest, right? And, and particularly the women in your life because they end up becoming your carers and your, your supporters uh, and no one gets through this illness on their own, you know? Mm -hmm. And she mm -hmm. said, to me, said to me, look, she said, in all the years that I've been with you, I've never seen you quit on anything you've ever done. So I had to wipe the tears from my eyes and I had to man up and, 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 and I looked at her and, and I thought, you know, is this her way of having a go at me or is this her way of motivating me to get up and do something about this problem? And mm -hmm. I, I took the latter and I said, come on and let's go and face the doctor then. And, you know, we, we, we came out of the vehicle, went in into the uh, building and we sat down with the doctor and I said, doctor, what do I need to do to deal with this problem? And the doctor looked at me and he said, Mr. McKellar, if we don't remove your prostate, you could be dead in six months. And I looked at him and I said, doctor, if that's what I need to do to keep myself alive, then let's do it. He said, there will be some issues you have to deal with. There'll be some side effects that you're gonna have to come to terms with. I said, doctor, and I, I repeated what I said to him again. I said, doctor, if I have a chance of staying alive, I will take that. Mm -hmm. So I had the operation, 
but by then the cancer had already started to move so it it, it had already traveled outside of the the cancer wall as we call it so i had to have nearly three months of radiotherapy after that operation mm-hmm. burn away the rest of that cancer which was very difficult but i had no choice because of the issues of the cancer starting to travel mm-hmm. And during that time, you know, I had to really take stock of myself. You know, I was out of work for, for, for nearly six months. And I remember sitting down with the wife and saying, look, you know, I think that I have to thank God for, 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 you know, for all of this, right. For me still being alive and still being lucky. And and I feel that I am lucky because, you know, if my cancer was as bad as what they're telling me, the fact that I'm still here, I have to thank God for that. Uh, and, you know, my wife turned to me and, and she said a, a very, very inspirational statement, which I take with me every day. And she said, you know what? She said, this cancer only knocked you down. You know, it didn't it didn't knock you out. And you're going to go to 12 rounds with it. But I think what you're going to try and do, if I know you, you'll take everybody in the ring with you and give yourself a chance of winning it on points. And every day I look at that statement and every day when I wake up, that's the statement I wake up with, right? How can I make a difference with this issue? And that's what I thought when she said it, that's what I felt I wanted to do. And and after being out of work for six months, I went back to work in a garage that I used to own in the East End of London in Hackney, mm-hmm. doing car servicing, um, mechanical repairs, bodywork and MOTs. And I remember having this conversation with the customer that came in, you know, the first day I was back and, you know, he was telling me how pleased he was, you know, he heard what I was going through and he pleased that, you know, I'm back at work and, you know, how I'm feeling generally. And during the conversation, the pleasant conversation, I sort of turned to him and and I don't even know why it came out of my mouth, mm-hmm. but I looked at him and I said to him, when was the last time you had your prostate checked? And he, and he you know, the pleasant conversation stopped and he looked yeah, at me and, yeah. He said, what the bleep, bleep, bleep has that got to do with my gearbox not working? (laughs) And you said a lot, actually. Yeah. yeah. So I turned to him again without thinking about it. And I said, I'll tell you what. I said, I'm going to give you 20% discount on the work I'm going to do on your car. If by the time you come back to pick up your car, you get your prostate checked. And, you know, I clearly didn't think this one through, right, when I said it to him, because two weeks later, when he came back to pick up his car, you know, he, you know, he, he turned to me and he said, um, I took your advice and he was waving this bit of paper in his hand. And I looked at him and I looked up to the sky and I said, Jesus Christ, this has just cost me 200 quid. Mm-hmm. Right? And and I think he, he, he saw the look on my face and, and he turned to me and he said to me, listen, he said, <laughs> you know, I'm not worried about the money, he said, but I think you need to read this letter. And you know what? He gave me the letter. And even to this day, I remember the shock when I opened that letter and I read the letter. When I read the letter, he had 25% cancer in his prostate, right? 25%. He was the first of 48 guys that walked into my garage, right? In Hackney, Oxton, right? The East End, right? The 48 men that walked into my garage that was diagnosed with prostate cancer. There may have been more, wow. but the ones that came in and told me. So, you know, this became for me 
something that I felt I needed to do. And, and, you know, and what was frightening about it is that there is over, over 47,000 men a year that are diagnosed with this particular problem. Yes. Right? There is over 11,000 men that die of prostate cancer in mm-hmm. this country mm-hmm. right, every year. That is one man every 45 minutes that will die of prostate cancer. So by the end of this day, we'd have lost 129 men to yeah. prostate cancer. Yeah. Yep. It's currently one in 12 Asian men, right, who die of prostate cancer. It's currently one in eight white men who die of prostate cancer. More frighteningly, it's currently one in four African Caribbean men who die of prostate cancer. And if it's in your family, then the risks are, are even higher. Yeah, you know, indeed. In, indeed. That's why I think, you know, it's so important that you're focusing on, you know, these these communities. Can can, can I ask you about, you know, the yeah. key messages you want to get out to to these men and, and their families and, you know, particularly these men and particularly black men where the burdens one in four, as you've just cited, that so they're at higher risk that, you know, they can understand what that means, one in four, as opposed to one in eight or one in 12. And so yeah. how do you shape that message to them about being a aware, be concerned and see willing to do something about it? Well, you know, you know what, what I've tried to do is, is you have to put this message over with some, some seriousness, but with an element of, of ease so that you can, people can digest it, you know, because mm-hmm. if you give them too much fear, right, the two biggest problems that I find in getting this message across is the fear and the ignorance. The fear, because once they are told about prostate cancer, the fear is to to el- eliminate it and, and, and hope that it doesn't happen to you. Mm-hmm. The ignorance is if it does unfortunately happen to you, you choose to do nothing about it and hope it's going to go away. And those mm-hmm, two. Mm-hmm. So the message that I try to get across is, gentlemen, prostate cancer affects the one in 12, one in eight, one in four. But let me tell you the truth about prostate cancer. Prostate cancer don't care about your color. Prostate cancer don't care about your wealth. Prostate cancer doesn't actually care about you. What it does, if you ignore it, it will kill you. Each race has to understand that the seriousness of this mm-hmm. is if it's caught early, we have almost a hundred percent success rate in coming out the other side. Mm-hmm. Very powerful, very powerful message. So in, in terms of the, what they can do about it, I, I believe, and you've just mentioned about the, the PSA test, I believe that yeah. one of your main um, implementation driven missions is to make the PSA test more available and accessible to men in your community. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the reason why is because the demographics of everything now is, is almost mobile as we speak, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. one thing that what COVID has forced everyone to do is to think out the box. You know, I, I, I'm a mechanic. So what I say to people is quite simple every year, you have to MOT your car every year. You have to tax your car every year. You have to insure your car. Yet these are three elements within us as human beings that we should be doing, right? I would like to have a PSA test done every single year because you know, what I'm saying to somebody is early detection is very, very important. Now, would you drive your car with no brakes 
and wait until you've knocked somebody over before you do something about it or would you deal with it now and it's no different to dealing with the PSA right if you have a PSA now and something flags up it's easier to deal with it than leave it for a year for it to fester longer and 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 the problem become more serious than it was a year ago yeah there are challenges because and the challenges are quite simple ones right the fact is the PSA is not a hundred percent but right so that, I wanted to ask you about that because yeah. um as you well know it, it the, the test itself is not without its detractors and so so how are you addressing this in um both the design and the implementation of this right. testing service you want to um you want right. to, what um, we're saying what we're saying is is that currently what we are offering has a 98 percent success rate mm -hmm. now at this moment the PSA is the only thing on the table right so okay the PSA may not be a hundred percent let's work towards making it a hundred percent you know if we're 98 percent a success rate let's work to get it to that hundred percent but in the meantime we can't have people dying through fear and ignorance because they choose to do nothing about it you know oh, absolutely so so what does that mean how do you make something um 100 as you say is it is it a right. question of you're not going to redesign the blood test no, no we're not going to redesign. Yeah. But, but what you know what's important it's important that people are involved in the testing it's important that people are involved in the research because it's the, the research and the testing that's going to improve the end result right you know you know 12 years ago when i had my 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 um test done and i had my operation you know i've spent the last five years involved in the research work and the research work is far far more than it was when it was done before but people you know as brilliant as all that work is if people are not aware of it they will still have this attitude that you know i don't want anything put up my rear end you know i don't want to you know the word biopsy puts people off mm -hmm. right but what i say to men when i have this conversation i said if you think that that's difficult ask a woman what she has to go through when she has to have her bits and pieces done right you know on a regular basis you know they have to deal with things that we as men become very screamish about mm -hmm. but to in, in its more important contents right that you know prostate is something that needs a lot more research and a lot more education you know the education is key because you know at this moment i'm dealing with 14 15 16 year olds who don't even know where their prostates are so yeah yeah this, yeah this means that we have to educate a lot earlier we have to go into schools to educate because if we got boys of 14 15 16 that don't know where their prostate is We've moved that on to 10 years, they will only be at the beginning of that journey. You know, mm -hmm. whereas at, at the moment we have ladies who are learning about periods and understanding more. Young men still don't know the, the, the issues with prostate cancer. And one of the things that I'm worried about is, you know, you know, there's a community that, you know, if there's a, a an excuse for not doing the test, then they're not doing the test, right? And when they go to their doctors, what we want the doctors to do is to do the test on them encourage mm. them to do this so because we don't have an alternative there is nothing you know the only blood test that we have available 
for testing prostate cancer is the PSA test. Yeah, well, and again, as you say, I mean, it, it gets better, if that's even a reasonable term, when you add on yeah. the other diagnostic bits. Yeah. But I, I want to come back to something you just said, which I, I, I'm particularly interested in. And you've mentioned quite a lot of things, and I just want to link up. You mentioned about yes. COVID and some of the things we've learned. You mentioned about sort of, you know, boys not knowing about their own anatomy and, and managing yeah. that. But, but I guess, you know, COVID... Um, has revealed so many health inequalities. Even that term is something that I think, you know, more and more people are familiar with. And, you know, I, one of the things about prostate cancer is there's always been health inequalities in diagnosis and treatment because, you know, as you say, one in four people in the black community um, yes. are diagnosed where one in eight people in the non-black community are diagnosed. So that's a pretty strong inequality, like 50%, you know? Yeah. Um, and And I guess one of the questions I have for you is, why do you think this persists? And, and, and what are your observations? What are people telling you that give you evidence right. to why it persists? I think, I, right. I'm going to give you the answer to the first part of that question. The reason mm -hmm. why I personally feel that this is in existence is because men in general, and particularly African Caribbean men, are mm -hmm. diagnosed late. If this test is made available, then there is, shouldn't be a reason for you to be diagnosed late for mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. You know, the one thing that everybody's agreed on, whether they, they agree or disagree, the one thing they agree on is early detection is key. Mm -hmm. right? Yes. So early detection has to be presented almost like a plate of food that you look at and you think, you know what, I need to have some of that food. If there's a fear factor involved in this, then that pushes people away. Yeah, so it's and got to be normalized, I think is what you're it's saying. It's got to be normalized. It has to be normalized. And, you know, listen, what men have got, we, we can learn a lot from the, the women in our lives, right? Because you ladies were proactive in getting your bits and pieces done and getting it sanctioned and authorized, right? By protesting, lobbying, marching, creating uh, information to say, look, we need to have some kind of literature to say we are supposed to have this test done at this mm -hmm. particular time, right? Mm -hmm. That's a simple piece of education. You know, because look, the women have already lobbied to get periods in school. Mm -hmm. Right now, where's our side of that conversation? Where's you know why are we not having prostates in school? Why are we not having that conversation in school? Why are we not saying to men, look, this is no different to moting of your motor car. This is no different to insuring your motor car. This is no different to taxing your motor car. Every year, you have to do these three things. There should be that test that you do every year, right? The simple 10-minute PSA test. We don't want men finding out by accident. They've gone to the doctor like myself or something else, yeah. picked up the leaflet, read the leaflet, decided to do the test, right? We want to create an annual yearly test for the PSA. And, the and, and at what age are you, are you suggesting that? Because, I mean, I'm back to your boys in school. I mean, I completely appreciate right. the importance of understanding yeah. anatomy and health and, you know, and if nothing, if anything else, for boys to understand well, what their fathers right. and their grandfathers yeah. might be dealing with. At, at the beginning, at the beginning, we would like, I mean, at the moment, it's, it's, it's 50. They mm -hmm. recommend, so you don't get a letter. You just get a recommend that when you get to 50, you should have a PSA test, right? Mm -hmm. yep. we, we, we have enough evidence to challenge that statement on its own, right? You know, I've had two people in those 48 people that have died of prostate cancer. One was 42 years of age. The other one was 36 years of age, Yeah. right? 
So we can challenge that statement. If you're African Caribbean descent, or you have a history of it in your family, it should be 45. Mm -hmm. Again, we have evidence to challenge that statement. So at this moment, we're saying 40 should be the point of where it should be done. But equally, because of the seriousness of this, particularly in the African Caribbean community, mm -hmm. let's look at this between the ages of 25 and 40. Let's have a look at it. Let's, let's not dismiss it as because what we're saying is, is that if they're not aware of it at 14, 15 and 16, you push on 10 years, right? Tw at 25 years of age, right? If there's a history of it in your family, you know, we have got evidence that, you know, we've got somebody of 36 that's died of it. We have had other people of information that have had people of 27, 28 that have died of it. So what we're saying is, look, it's clearly an issue in the African Caribbean community. Yes. That goes without saying. So let's not, let's not go down this ritual of oh well if it was one in four white men it would be a different conversation let it yeah. be a conversation for every man full stop yeah right? fair enough fair enough i mean I, I i so that's interesting so you're not just focusing on the afro-caribbean or the asian community but all men all men all men because you know what as i said it in the in this conversation Prostate don't care about your color. It doesn't ask. It didn't ask me whether I was black, white, or indifferent. No, indeed, right? indeed. But the risk factors are different, as you as the you risk noted. Are different, mm. and and we're not we're not neglecting that. But what we're saying is, we want all men to be treated okay. equally with this problem. Okay, right? so I want to move on to what, how you're proposing. You know, specifically, I want to get into the real nitty gritty because we don't have too much time left. And and just have you tell us is is. is quickly and and you know maybe i think as i'm hearing myself say this i'm thinking probably want to do a follow-up because you've got so much to say but you are yeah. proposing as i understand it to introduce a a mobile psa a mobile, yeah yeah we want to do what's not been done before right mm -hmm. well what we're saying is our research tells us that there's a lot of men who are still having an excuse not to go to their doctors they're definitely not happy to go to the hospital because they're worried about what's going on at the moment so they would rather not go to the hospital so it comes back to this word of the fear and ignorance mm -hmm. um, you know last year i lost 15 men to prostate cancer right 15 men died of prostate cancer 10 of those men refused to go to their doctors or hospitals so you know for me those are the two elements that affected those 15 people through fear and ignorance. Mm -hmm. They either chose to do something or chose not to do something or did something when it was too late. We can't continue to have this kind of situation going on. So our idea is if people aren't going to do the test, we will bring the test to them. Yeah. So I guess it's kind of like if, you know, Mountain yeah. doesn't come to Mohammed. Mohammed will go bring to the Mohammed mountain. to the mountain. Yeah, <laughs> you know that that is that that is the cliche. And the, what we you know we've done all the necessary homework. We've done all the due diligences that are needed to be done, right? And we believe that the mobile PSA testing vehicle with the equipment that we want to put on this vehicle, that as we say will give up to a ninety eight percent success rate in the results. And we can not only do the test on you, we can give you the results in 35 minutes, right? We are confident that we can take the pressure off NHS and the doctors 
by doing up to 20,000 tests or more per year with this equipment and the mobile system that we're talking about by taking it around particularly in the communities and and we're capable of going into the places where the so-called masses don't go okay we will go into these estates we will go into the community places and you know we have the resources and we have the people who can help to make this work so is this where your football connections play, come into play? Yeah, yeah. No pun intended. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah no, no, it, it's, it's a great pun and, and it's right. You know, we have a majority of the football grounds around the country that want us to bring the mobile testing vehicle to the football grounds right on a match day where the audience base there is at least 75% men. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it goes Or, or they're nagging wives. Or they're nagging wives, right? <laughs> and and there's nothing simpler than somebody, you know, we, we, we have this, we have the system right where, you know, we are going to treat the whole thing like a, a traffic light system. So it's green for everything that's fine. It's amber for, for surveillance and monitoring and red for immediate attention, right? Where we will bring, you know, a consultant to the table, right? Um, we will do a care of duty, um, but what, what is important is that we are also going to create a data with all of this information mm -hmm. so that we can help with a better understanding as to why men, right, are at higher risk, right, with prostate cancer. Because we'll be able to ask the direct questions. We'll be able to look at it and say, look, this is what's happening to a black man. This is what's happening to a white man. This is what's happening to an Asian man. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. and, and we feel that... Yeah, and no disrespect to to the the authorities like the NHS, but we feel we feel that you know they've got a document that is not going to be not going to be reviewed again until two thousand and twenty four. Well, if we're losing fifty thousand men a year, that means we're going to lose over a hundred thousand men, right? And that's not even including this year's total mm -hmm. before we address the situation again. That can't be accepted in any shape or form. Well, Errol. I am so inspired by what you're doing. I mean, you know, not only are you trying to do something that's immediately implementable and you've, you've sourced technology, you've sourced expertise, you've got the yeah. channels, you know, you've got a vision about um, building up a data set that can be used for, you know, future benefit. All I can say is, wow. And I look forward to picking up with you maybe maybe later in the year to see, see you know, where you're going. Um, yeah. There's so many ways of looking at this, but I think what you're doing yeah. is just an incredible service. And I want to thank you so much for coming and telling us about it today. Hey, listen, if you have anyone out there that wants to, to come on board and, and, and help, because what we're doing and what we're trying to do, we need help. And, and you know, they can get in touch with the errolmckellarfoundation.com to tell us if they, one, want to sponsor or support or, you know, but, this is going to happen. This is we who's going to make a difference, not me. We. We mm -hmm. are going to make a difference. And that's why we set up this charity for this reason. We, we felt that something needs to be done and it needs to be done now. Well, I commend you and I wish you all the best. And I want to thank you once again for joining us today. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you to your listeners. Okay. A transcript of this interview and links to the Errol McKellar Foundation are available in the program notes on our website, along with further information on diagnostics and treatment for prostate cancer and additional interviews and stories about men who are living with prostate cancer. Please visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Focal Therapy Clinic. Thanks for listening. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time. Mm -hmm.